0: gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 18. We are reading verses 9 through 14. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God let's pray. And Father, we come as those sinners, not exalting ourselves before you, but in humility, recognizing our poverty, recognizing our weakness, recognizing that we are darkness. But yet you give us light, light in your Son and by your Spirit. And it is your Spirit who leads and guides us into all truth. And so, Lord, today we ask that you will speak and that you will guide us into all truth. For we are here listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible available, you may turn with me to Psalm 51. We are beginning a new series today. It is a new series in that it is the series that was aborted when COVID fell upon the world several years ago. For those of you who are with us at that point, and there were not many people attending on that Sunday, we began a series on repentance from the Psalms. And so that is what we will follow over these weeks. We slightly began last week as we finished up Solomon's life. Looking at Psalm 73, a psalm of repentance, in which Solomon turns. And he turns from his envy and from his arrogance, and he turns to God as he's reminded of all of God's goodness to him in life. And this week, we are looking at a classic prayer of confession from Psalm 51. Now, last week, I was attempting to remember some of the details from several years ago. A lot of things have happened in between. And so I visited the website, something I don't necessarily do that frequently, to look up ser- a sermon. I was attempting to figure out when I exactly had preached on this and what I had said. I, accept, I uh, chose the drop-down menu that sorted the sermons by book of the Bible, and there in order was everything listed, and it also had a number next to it. And that was how many sermons had been preached on that book of the Bible. I chuckled to myself, because despite spending almost an entire year in the book of Romans, that across the course of of eight years here at Christ Church, more sermons have been preached out of the Psalms than any other book by a long shot. (laughs) So here we are again, perhaps not surprising to many of you, uh, to spend time in the Psalms. And a lot of this is because I love the Psalms. So on a personal level, just a book of the Bible that's particularly Ministered to me, they've been my companions through seasons of joy and also seasons of difficulty and trouble. And it was particularly in seasons of distress and trouble where this book, this collection of 150 songs, poems written to God, prayers, uh, is when these, uh, this collection, particularly, found resonance in my heart. It was during those seasons of distress. There was such honesty here. There were prayers in the midst of life's trouble. There were prayers in the midst of suffering and pain. There were prayers in the midst of worry and anxiety. There were prayers in the midst of doubt and also confusion. And there were prayers in situations dealing with adversaries and enemies. This was the type of stuff that I could connect with. I understood. It felt visceral and real. The honesty was impressive. In situations in which I didn't exactly know how to pray, I was finding words to fill in the gap. And so this was the value of the Psalms, situations of trouble and distress. And then there's Psalm 51. It's also a Psalm about trouble, but the trouble is not out there in some circumstance, and the trouble is not out there in some adversary. No, the trouble in Psalm 51 is wholly and completely and unreservedly in you and in me. That the trouble and distress, which we find in Psalm 51, is self-afflicted. It's the trouble and distress created by the sinful self. And so we encounter ourselves and our rebellion and our turn against God in Psalm 51. But the psalm doesn't simply confront us with all of that problem. It also leads us in the way of addressing the predicament of the sinful self. It leads us in the path of repentance. John Calvin, the reformer of Geneva, helpfully explains that repentance is not something that we do in one moment or on one day or on one in one year. That repentance is a constant and continual process. He uses the helpful phrase that God has given us a race of repentance to run throughout the Christian life. And so the whole of the Christian life is repentance, in which we're learning to turn away from ourselves, that is, our desires, our values, our inclinations, our judgments, and we're turning to God and yielding ourselves to Him. Repentance is the process of saying no to the self. And yes to God. Turning to God and yielding ourselves to Him. And so the most important question for us to ask and to answer this morning is what does repentance as a way of life involve for you and involve for me? And in Psalm 51, we discover four things about this repentance as a way of life. We'll see its basis. We'll discover also its necessity. We'll see its orientation And finally, we'll discover its fruit. And so let's look at each of those in turn. First, we discover the basis of our repentance. David begins his prayer, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's interesting because we know the range of words In which the Old Testament used for the concept of sin or rebelling against God. And there are specifically three words sin, iniquity, and transgression. And inside of these two verses, David uses the entire vocabulary. And he does so very intentionally because he's not hiding, but he's acknowledging that he can bring all of his fault and all of his failure to God. And he's able to do so on account of one thing. There's one conviction that underlined, that, under, that lies beneath all of this confession of sin in which he's bringing sin and iniquity and transgression. This heavy load that he's bearing. There's a theological conviction. And look at it once again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy. And this is what's critical for us to appreciate in the dynamics of this prayer, is that it is the steadfast love of God, that it is the mercy of God revealed to us in Jesus that draws out our repentance, that the basis of our repentance, why we can even begin to come to God, is because He is one who abounds in mercy. That God's grace is prior. And because we know that He is a loving Father, we can come to Him as rebellious sons and daughters and we can look to Him and call upon Him for grace. So we can confess what we've done before God because we know who God is for us in Jesus. He's filled with steadfast love and mercy. Calvin, in his commentary, rhetorically asks the question that's very helpful. Who can venture to open his mouth in God's presence unless he be assured of his fatherly favor? And friends, you have his fatherly favor. You have his fatherly favor because of the Son. That all the blessings that the Father gives to his Son, that all the blessings that the Father gives to Jesus Christ are yours, not because you've earned them, not because you deserve them, Not because you have made yourself good enough to sneak up into heaven and climb some ladder there. But no, you have all of that blessing. You have all of that kindness. You have all of that favor. Only because Jesus is the one who intercedes for you. Dying your death on the cross. And now united to Him. You know all of the blessings that the Father gives to the Son. All of His favor belongs to you. And part of that blessing is that you can freely come to Him. And you can freely confess your sins, acknowledging them to Him. That's the conviction that underlies the repentant heart. We are assured, we are persuaded, we are convinced that God is merciful to us in Jesus. That on the cross Jesus absorbed all of our condemnation and that He exhausted that. And therefore, we can come. You can come in all your grime. You can come in all your filth. You can come in all of your half-hearted repentance. You can come in all your lack of change. You can come in all your frustration and disappointment. And you can acknowledge those sins to God because steadfast love and mercy are yours. To be a repentant person... Means that we're people who are profoundly aware of the grace of God. That is the basis of your repentance. And so we know all of our sin, we know all of our transgression, we know all of our iniquity, that big, broad range of vocabulary. But yet we believe that sin, transgression, and iniquity are outmatched by one thing steadfast love and mercy. That is God's gift to you in Jesus. And so we can repent. That's the basis. In the second, we also discover the necessity of repentance. Psalm 51 is very blunt. It acknowledges sin. And it also acknowledges our accountability to God. The reality is that sin puts us at odds with God. If you follow with me in verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And David here is recognizing, he's recognizing the strong fact that he's alienated himself from God by his sin. That he is a justly due punishment because of sin. And so he recognizes the weight of it. That he's done evil in the sight of God. And so he knows that God doesn't just excuse this. That there has to be justice. That God would be blameless in a judgment to condemn him. He's also aware of the mercy of God, but he feels the gravity of sin. And this is part of the Christian life. It's despite knowing all the depth, of the riches of the mercy and the kindness of God that are ours in Jesus, we also feel the tremendous weight and gravity and seriousness of our turn against God. And what we find here is that this turn involves two things. That, that, that repentance is necessary for these two reasons. That there's going to be a confession of actual sins in which we acknowledge our specific sins specifically following verse three he says for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me he knows that God sees it that's before God that we cannot hide that nothing is hidden from his sight and so it's all in view and he recognizes his sins he doesn't actually name his sins specifically here because this prayer was used corporately But he knows that those sins are very specific. And of course, the context is most likely David's failure with Bathsheba. But they're acknowledged and known before God. And friends, this is one of the motions of repentance, is acknowledging specific sins specifically. The second motion is that confession also involves who and what we are in our corrupt nature. You follow in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David has moved on. Not is he just down in the particulars, the specifics. Now he moves out to the general. That he acknowledges that he sins because there's something fundamentally true about him. That is that he is a sinner. That yes, in Jesus, our sins have been pardoned and even our sinful nature has been killed in a certain way, but yet it's still present in us. And so it's important for us to acknowledge that and to confess even that corrupt nature to God. So he moves from the particular back to the general and he recognized that he sins because he is a sinner. This is not to excuse his wrongs and just say, well, we're all sinners. My wife once confronted our daughter. It's in the early days here at Christ Church and they were sitting on the second row. She was dancing on the chairs at a time that she was not supposed to be dancing. And she was told to stop. And she looked at Melissa and shook her head no. Someone else was watching on and giggled, knowing that we had a strong-willed child. And then, Melissa said to her, you know the consequences? And she said, yes, I do. We're all sinful, Mom. (laughs) And we can all mimic that in certain ways. Well, I'm just a sinner. I can't really help it. Sometimes people will slip and say, I'm just human. No, to be human is not to be sinful. It is now, but it's not what you were created to be. And so we acknowledge that corruption that lives in us. We grieve it. We lament it. And so in our prayers of confession, we want to be specific. And then we also want to be general. We want to do both. And friends, we attempt to persuade you in this way through what we do on Sunday mornings. We give you opportunity for specific, private interaction with God. Specific sins with specificity. Naming those sins to God. Your failures from the past week. And then we say a general prayer together in which we're owning our sinfulness. That a repentant life does both things. Specific sins specifically and also acknowledging our corrupt nature. That's the necessity of repentance because we're engaged in both of those things. Now third... We also see the orientation of our repentance. That is where it's directing us. In verses 7 through 9, David asks that God would purge him and wash him from his sins. It's powerful language. He requests that God hide his face from what he had done. It's great language for prayer. But then there's a turn in verse 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And what's critical for us to recognize is that in his repentance, David doesn't just ask that God forgive his sin. He does do that, and we should be freely confessing and asking that God purge us and wash us and hide his face from our sins. But if he stopped there, his character would have would largely be left untouched. And God is not content with leaving us untouched, but rather what he does is he makes that triple request. That God would create, that God would restore, that God would uphold, that God would renew. And friends, this is the orientation of our repentance. It's not simply to ask for forgiveness, but we ask that God would reorient us in a new direction. That he would amend and change and transform our lives. This is the work of God's spirit to orient us to him and this is the turn that we turn from ourselves and that we be yielded to God and what we're recognizing that is this theological truth that only God can do this when he asks God to create in him a clean heart this is that strong verb of creation that is not something that can be manufactured It's not something that we can do ourselves. It's something that only God can give. That he is the one who brings something out of nothing. And so he's looking from weakness and dependence and total helplessness. And asking that God give him a heart that would be oriented to obedience. Our problem is not just a need for pardon from a particular wrong. There is that. That is a problem. But our problem is also the need from deliverance from the predicament of ourselves and our sinfulness and the trap that we find ourselves in. And so we ask God to create. We ask him to renew. We ask him to uphold us in our repentance. And finally, we also see the fruit of this repentance. Verses 13 through 19 bring the psalm to a close. With the language shifting and changing, going from supplication to now asking God in a different spirit of supplication, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And for the one who is restored for the one who tastes of all the goodness of God in His grace and mercy, in all of His creating and renewing and upholding, those who experience that wonder of repentance. We call upon God for the joy of salvation to be renewed in us. And this grace then descends upon us and we begin to edify the community around us. We testify to that goodness. We share in it with others. We join in that company, offering sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise in and through Jesus. David pledges to teach others the ways of God in verse 13. In verse 15, he requests that God would open his lips to offer praise. A beautiful prayer, a confession of faith. In verse 17, he says that God doesn't delight in sacrifice. That is, God didn't delight in the Old Testament in empty sacrifice. Obviously when you reach verses 18 through 19, they were still offering sacrifices. They couldn't sit light to that. There was the need for atonement and all that that atonement was pointing to was Jesus. But God didn't want their empty sacrifices just like he doesn't want your empty worship. He wants the heart gripped, the humble heart, the broken heart gripped by his prior love, his steadfast love and mercy. Verse 19, we are told that God delights in right sacrifices. And for us today, those right sacrifices are the joyful and the glad thanksgivings offered to God through Jesus. It's the heart moved, the heart gripped by grace. The fruit of repentance is a life that praises and a life that proclaims. It testifies and teaches about the grace of God because it knows this supreme gift. And friends, if the church is to be renewed, if the churches have any word to speak to the culture around it, it only emerges from this continued repentance. It only emerges from the community that lives in this way, that knows that its God is the one who abounds in steadfast love and mercy. And that Jesus stands at the right hand of God interceding for us even today and freely welcomes us to come. It's in that ongoing repentance that the church lives in dependence upon God and weakness. And it's there that we're strong. We have something to proclaim. We have something to celebrate. We have a reason to exist. We have something to orient our lives. And it is this mercy of God that underlies our repentance. And so as we take this journey up into Holy Week towards Easter, embrace that life of repentance. Run that race of repentance. May it not be something that you just isolated to a moment, but may it be the motion and the dynamic of the Christian life in which you turn from yourself and freely turn to God because he's gracious to you in Jesus. Let's ask for his help. Father, we acknowledge all of our weakness and all of our sin. We acknowledge our dependence upon grace and mercy. And we also acknowledge that all of your fatherly favor is ours in Jesus. And so bring us out Bring us out of our hiding, bring us out of our shame, bring us out of our defeat, and may we enter into the victory of Jesus, and knowing that that victory frees us to confess, to own, and to turn. And so grant us this freedom of life, in which we are free to teach and to praise and to proclaim. Work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.